Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Linda Frasetto, who is a nephrologist uh, over at the University of California, San Francisco, where she's a professor emeritus in the Department of Medicine. So she is going to share with us some really exciting information about acid in your diet and how it affects your longevity and kidney health, which is a real significant issue because lots of people as they age have problems with their kidneys. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I saw your presentation at, I think, Ancestral Health Symposium is definitely one of the, probably the best one I saw there this year. And uh, and aside from Chris Kenobi, who was really one of my favorites, who was a real, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see him there, but man, he's just, I'm interviewing him in a few more weeks about his, his concept. He's like Weston Price of the 21st century. Amazing guy. Uh, so you are a nephrologist. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you're working? I think, I think UCSF is where Dr. Robert Lustig works out of too, where he's in pediatric. Yeah, Bob is at UC, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So another another great great guy so uh all right well let us let us hear, hear a little bit about your journey into where you got now and you know why you know how you started nephrology and what brought you to this understanding of the uh integration with the uh, the diet and the evolution of its, its, its impact on health right so um you know, kidney medicine is something that even though I'm an internist, a lot of kidney doc, a lot of internal medicine doctors, for them, the kidney's kind of a black box. If there's some problem, it's like, oops, off to the kidney doctors. And when I was in internal medicine training, I happened to have a really super mentor by a guy, a guy named Eli Friedman at SUNY in Brooklyn, who was just this incredible, enthusiastic guy, and he made nephrology sound really interesting. And so after I'd been in, um, after I finished my residency and I was an internist, actually a hospitalist for a couple of years, I decided to go back and do nephrology um, because it, he just made it people who did nephrology just had this better understanding of physiology than most internists do. So I, I thought that would help make me a better doctor. And um, after I finished my residency, uh, excuse me, my fellowship, I started working with a guy named Anthony Sebastian here at UCSF. And he was interested in diet acid load in people who were relatively healthy. So um, the kidneys do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they do is they get rid of acid. And so we know that as kidney failure progresses, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you have trouble getting rid of the acid and it accumulates in your system and it has a lot of bad side effects. 
And we also know, as you said, as you get older, your kidneys tend not to work as well. And so what Tony was looking at was, how about in otherwise healthy older people whose kidneys just aren't working as well as they did, let's say, you know, 40 or 50 years earlier, did eating a high acid diet, did that have any uh, potential side effects? Um, and so really it was working with Tony that we really started working on um, either neutralizing the acid in the diet with bicarbonate or um, maybe, maybe about like 10, 15 years ago, we started looking at low acid diets. And so if you look at that, you know, if you say, where are the acids coming from in foods? Well, all foods contain precursors that are metabolizable to acids. But fruits and vegetables contain a lot of um, alkali precursors that are metabolizable to bicarbonate like citrate or malate. And so then we started looking at um, the paleo diet from Lauren Cordain, um, because Cordain had been looking at this for many years, and what he was saying was that um, there are a lot of things in our diet that weren't available to our um, human ancestors, like dairy products after infancy or processed grains or processed sugars, and that... Um, we would be healthier if we ate a diet more like the one our um, our human ancestors ate, which is essentially you throw out all the processed foods and you get rid of dairy for everybody except infants. And that, and any diet with a lot of fruits and vegetables in it will be a relatively lower acid diet. So that was, you know, really how I got interested in it. Yes, yeah, and it's interesting that's a similar uh, approach that Chris Kenobi evolved to from a different perspective as an ophthalmologist. And it's essentially the elimination of these processed foods that appears to be the genesis of almost every chronic degenerative disease, you know, cancer and heart disease. And in Chris's case, uh, age-related macular degeneration, it, it, it seems to be the critical variable. And prior to the introduction of these foods, we didn't have these problems. <laughs> they, were, they were rare events. Now it's the number, it's the leading causes of death. So I have, a, I have a foundational question for you to set the perspective because there's, there's essentially two populations. There's this population that you referred to or implied that was eating a, an ancestral type diet, no processed foods, essentially optimal and healthy. And they will progress to a certain level of kidney dysfunction as they age. And then there's the, almost everyone else who's eating processed foods and processed oils and sugars, and they're going to accelerate much more rapidly. And I'm wondering if you've uh, looked at those populations separately and, and have a comment on the incidence of the, of the progression of kidney disease in those populations. Yeah. So um, if you look at any large population and you just look at the average um, kidney function over time, on average, everybody's kidney function declines. But if you look at specific individuals, kidney function either declines much more slowly or um, may even level out. 
And the question is, how related is that to um, eating a low acid diet or doing things that wouldn't bother your kidneys? And so this has actually been looked at by a guy named Donald Wesson, who's a nephrologist at UT Southwestern. And he's looked at both alkali supplements and fruits and vegetable diets in people with what's called stage two kidney disease, which is um, estimated GFR between 60 and 90, and stage three CKD, which is estimated GFR from 30 to 60. And for, and for those of us who aren't nephrologists, GFR is glomerular filtration. filtration rate. And that's an estimate of kidney function. Um, and so if you're and I'm just going to use averages now. If you're um, 90 years old, you're, excuse me, if you're 50 years old, your GFR is about 90. And if you're 80 years old, your GFR is about 60. So on average, people who are older are going to have what we would call in a kidney failure patient, stage two or stage three CKD. And Donald Wesson showed in these people that if you either gave them alkali supplements like baking soda, um, or you put them on a fruits and vegetable diet, um, or with a diet with more fruits and vegetables, um, that you could slow the rate of decline of kidney disease. And so if you extrapolate that from people with kidney failure to just older people, the idea would be that maybe you can slow the rate of decline of your kidney function, even if you're otherwise healthy and just getting older. Um, that's the idea. Um, okay. And that... and. Everything that you do, everything is related to kidney function in some degree because the kidneys get rid of a lot of things. And the worse the kidneys work, the worse everything works. Um, and so because the kidneys have such an, such an important role in the whole body's physiology, my idea, which is not really incredible, is that you would be better off if your kidneys are functioning better and that if you can, you know, if eating lots of fruits and vegetables is going to help slow the damage to your kidneys and otherwise keep you more healthy in an overall sense, then it would make sense to try to do things that would slow damage to the kidneys. Okay. So there, there are appear to be a different progressive rates of progression in these populations. So I, I've interviewed another nephrologist who you might be familiar with, Dr. Jason Fung, who's up in Toronto. And he's most well known for uh, espousing a fa fasting uh, for treating kidney problems. And he uh, practices in Canada, so it's socialistic medicine, and doesn't have a lot of time or resources to help his patients and became quickly frustrated with his inability to make an impact on what he perceived, you know, the progression of this disease and, and, and which seemed to be mostly related to diabetes or pro problems with insulin resistance, which, which also results in hypertension, heart disease. So I'm wondering, um, you know, if it's, if it's more than just, in your experience, just more than just the uh, high or low acid, high acid buffering diet with plants and vegetables, but also integrating uh, periods of not eating to obtain metabolic flexibility that might ultimately be a final resolution. 
Um, so a little bit of background. So most kidney disease in Western countries is, especially more advanced kidney disease, is due to high blood pressure and diabetes. And three out of every four patients on dialysis are on dialysis because of high blood pressure and diabetes. So you could see why diabetes is a really big deal. Um, I think in terms of diabetes control, I think anything that improves diabetes control will improve, um, will, you know, ultimately help improve kidney health. So the better, and, and there's many ways to do that. So intermittent fasting is one, um, um, you know, exercise is another one. Watching your weight is another one. The combination of all of these may be really good. Taking, taking your medications. Um, I work with a diabetologist and, you know, one of the, one of the most frustrating things for doctors who take care of people with chronic kidney disease is that we can tell you what to do, but you have to do it. And if you don't do it, then it's not going to help. I mean, I've been a doctor for 30 years and I tell people you should eat right and exercise. Yeah. <laughs> you know? well, and, and to actually handhold them through their process requires enormous time and invet, uh, investment and a, really a team, a specialized team to do that, which is why Jason came to that conclusion because he didn't have to do that. He just said, don't eat. And that's simple. doesn't take a lot of handholding. Just don't eat. You know, he gave him some little guidelines, but it was, it was simple, which is why he really embraced that mm -hmm. process. And so I'm going to say if you can get your patients not to eat, um, great. <laughs> I'm going to say that I have enough trouble trying to get my patients to do one-tenth of what I ask. Right. Um, so I've kind of gone to the anything you can do that would help okay. is good. Um, All right. So which makes, makes – uh, your recommendation of low acid uh, and then acid buffering strategies more more makes more sense in that context. So let's step back another point because I am curious as to the your 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 uh, perspective on the contribution of the acid contribution of the acid uh, damage versus the protein damage because it's least conventionally thought, and it may not be true, that high protein uh, diets because of the ammonia that's generated and the uh, necessity of that being filtered through the kidney could cause kidney damage. Do you think it's more of the pr protein issue or is it the acid or both? Um, so proteins are, you know, all proteins contain acid precursors. Um, and if you're eating a high protein load and you're also, you know, and you don't have enough alkali to help the kidneys either to help the body buffer this or to help the kidneys get rid of the acid, then we do actually believe that that's ultimately bad for your kidneys but you do need to eat an, i mean you have Enough to eat protein. a certain amount of protein yes, or you're going to have problems building things too so this is really a balance question Good. it's not that protein is bad it's that i think that if you're eating a lot of protein you should also be eating a lot of alkali um, and that will help 
you not use the body's systems in order to be able to neutralize or buffer the acid in your system. So the whole idea is that you want to maintain your blood pH within the range that is considered to be normal. So to do that, okay, you either move the acid inside the cells, you break down the muscles to supply glutamine ultimately to the kidneys to excrete the acid as ammonium. Um, you break down your bone, which is calcium, which is you know calcium hydroxyapatite, which is which is the alkali, or you have to decrease the amount of endogenous acids that you produce in order to be able to maintain your blood pH. So your body has a lot of ways of dealing with um, the acids that the kidney has to get rid of. Um, and so if you're giving the body exogenous alkali, meaning you either take bicarbonate or you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, you don't need to break down your bones and muscles in order to be able to neutralize the acid in your system, which your body really cares about. So hydrogen ions are, are, are um, balanced at the level of 10 to the minus nine, which is a super, super low level of free hydrogen ion in the body. And the changes that you can make to that without going outside the range of normal and becoming ill is not very big. So there's only a couple things you can do here. Um, and so either you're gonna break down your body systems or you give your body exogenous alkaline. Okay, well, thanks, because I think I was confused on this too. And just to give you a little personal history, uh, I, my kidneys were challenged because of an ac uh, acute mercury insult from having my mercury amalgam fillings removed in the 90s uh, by a non-biological dentist, and I just had a massive mercury exposure, which damaged the kidneys. And as a result, I've been sensitive to high proteins. I noticed that when I go on a low-protein diet, I mean, it's definitely subtherapeutic. And, and I was, uh, for a time there, very fearful of mTOR activation and, and all of its consequences and not understand the importance of cyclically activating it. So I would go like 60, 70 grams of protein for a long time. And I noticed my kidney function would improve. I didn't realize it was large, maybe largely related to the low acid load. I thought it was just, just, just the metabolism of the protein. It appears not to right. be. But when I increase that, and, and I did, will definitely get into the alkali because that's really the meat of this, of this uh, your, your, your work. Uh, but I didn't, because I do a lot of alkali, I didn't notice the buffering. And I still notice as I increased uh, the protein intake to like double, like 120, 150 grams, that the, my kidney function started to decline, even though I was taking the acid, or the alkali buffering. But maybe I guess it sounds like that the, the, uh, acid contribution for the increased protein exceeded the buffering capacity of the, of the supplements? Um, so the answer to that one is maybe yes, maybe no. Um, so in advanced kidney disease, we do actually give alkali um, because it's, you know, it's been shown to slow the, um, the how quickly we have to put people on dialysis. Um, so when you say how do we how do we improve kidney function, you know we keep the blood pressure under control, we keep the diabetes under control, we con we um, control the proteinuria, which is damage to the glomerular barrier, and we use medications to do that, and then we give alkali. Um, and how much alkali to give? Um, if you if you read 
nephrology textbooks, they'll say that um, bicarbonate distributes um, in the total body water, which if you're 70 kilos is about 40 liters. And that in order to raise the bicarbonate levels, you'd actually need to give a lot of bicarb. But in practice, it turns out that we don't have to give that much bicarb in order to be able to raise the, the bicarbonate levels into the normal range. Um, so, you know, these days, for example, if you're bicarb is 20 um, and you want to make it 24, which is in the normal range, um, and you weigh 70 kilos, um, we would give you um, 20 millimoles, milliequivalents of bicarbonate um, in order to try to raise the bicarb levels up. So not well, as much as you would there. definitely think, you know? Yeah. Well, let's translate that for the lay, lay part audience. First of all, to get those measurements, is that only uh, possible through an arterial blood gas? No. So um, typically those, typically that's done off of venous blood, which is the type that you routinely get when um, you have blood drawn from a vein. Okay. Um, and then this is one of the normal measures. If people get um, what's called an electrolyte or a renal panel, it'll have the serum bicarbonate in it. Okay. And the normal range is uh, 23 to 27 or 28, something like that. Um, and so as you know, but if it comes, you know, if your GFR isn't that good, it might be 18 or 20 or 20, 21. And so then we want to move it up into the normal range. Um, and so it's a little, you know, I, I could go into how to do this, um, but I don't really think people should be doing this unless they have a doctor um, looking over their shoulder to make sure it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so do we can we can give a caution to do, only do this with professional guidance and consultation because yeah. it could be dangerous. Yeah, you know, I I find that I get notes from people who have done these things, and I'm like, why are you doing that? Nah. So <laughs> I I prefer not to give actual medical advice. Okay, all right. So, but how do you translate the the millimole recommendation you gave earlier to an actual quantity of like yeah. or okay so it depends on how you take it um so um millimoles are the molecular weight of something so you need to be able to figure out what the molecular weight is and then you would turn that into milligrams um, so for example, sodium bicarbonate has a molecular weight of 100. So if you want to give 5 millimoles of bicarbonate, that would be 500 milligrams of bicarbonate. Okay. All right. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I know millimoles is the more scientific term to use because it does factor in the weight, the molecular weight. As right. And when you talk about acids, we actually turn them into milliequivalents because we're really concerned about neutralizing the charge. Um, and different things have different amount of charge on them. So, Okay. So I, I, while we're on the, uh, the, the bicarb, I think we maybe I just had a few questions on this because obviously there's there's two primary well there's a number of ways but there's two primary ways that you can give bicarb one is the sodium the other is potassium and uh, it, it would seem that it would be better to use potassium bicarb because most people are deficient in that at least according to the rda 
uh, which is questionable because they just changed the standards again. But I'm, do you have any strong opinions on that one way or the other? Yeah. So, you know, you can only sell over-the-counter bicarbonate, which is five millimoles of potassium bicarb. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reason for that is that if you have kidney <laughs> failure, mm -hmm. potassium accumulates and it can kill you. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we don't want people taking potassium bicarbonate if you have a kidney problem, um, whereas sodium bicarbonate is baking soda and is sold over the counter in large quantities. So it's a lot easier to get sodium bicarbonate. And with advanced kidney failure, that's what we use is um, a sodium bicarbonate, sodium citrate combination. And how, how effective are the citrates, uh, like potassium? Well, some people citrate, actually think prefer citrate, citrate um, because citrate is also excreted by the urine. And, for example, it helps keep the urine not very acidic. Some people are prone to kidney stones um, in, if you eat a typical Western diet, so a typical high acid diet, the urine pH is very low and that predisposes you to calcium oxalate and uric acid stones. So if you have a lot of citrate in your urine, it's one of the things that helps prevent stones. So a lot of people use citrate rather than bicarbonate. Okay. And it, uh, is it a pretty much milligram per milligram equivalent for the bicarbonate? No, well, no, because citrate has a different molecular weight. Okay, so it would be more or less, do you think? More. Citrate more. has a higher molecular weight. All right, so you need more more citrates. Mm -hmm. And still, but you probably, well, I would imagine along the same lines, you would be adverse to make, recommending potassium citrate because of the potential for accumulating. Too same. It's, it's not the citrate that's the problem. It's the potassium, potassium that's the right. problem. Right. So that's, that's good to know because that's not widely known. And uh, there is a woman named Sally Norton who's uh, really become appreciated as one of the leading experts in oxalates. She's a nutritionist in, in RD and uh, really talks a lot about this. And citrates are one of the strategies she uses to, to uh, remove this, the oxalate load from the body. Certainly, it increases the solubility of the urine, but it also helps remove it from the tissues because you can build up quite high body burns of this oxalates. And, and even if it doesn't cause kidney stones, there's, there's a lot of interesting, compelling clinical data that suggests it has other, other toxicities aside from renal. So um, let's go into some of the other mechanisms, which uh, are interesting because there's this anti-aging protein called clotho, and it's related to this whole discussion. So I'm wondering if you could uh, review the clotho. And describe what yeah. So, I mean, this is one of these emerging ideas that I think is really fascinating. Um, so, clotho, from a kidney point of view, is used um, to help get rid of phosphate. And phosphate is another one of those acids that has to be excreted by the kidneys. But in small animals, if you overexpress the clotho gene, those animals live you know, 10 to 40% longer. So and, there's and something. Is this a genetic ahead. variant or is this something, some, an animal that's been uh, genetically edited? That's right. This is a, they put more clotho genes into okay. these animals. These are transduced, you know, transduced animals. Okay. Um, so, and they do this and they overexpress the clotho genes and those animals live longer. But what, 
Clotho does in the body is it's a membrane transporter and it's a soluble protein. And when you eat a high phosphate diet, one of the things that happens is you release something called FGF23, which then goes to the kidneys and it attaches to clotho as a cofactor. And the part of the clotho breaks off um, and it goes to the proximal tubule in the kidneys and it removes the transporters that allow the kidneys to reabsorb phosphate. And so the, the, um, kidneys filter the blood and then the filtrate goes through the kidney tubules and because the transporters aren't there then you just pee out the extra phosphate so this helps get your phosphate balance back into normal and as you keep eating a high phosphate diet and phosphate is in everything um, so it's hard not to eat a high phosphate diet so as we keep eating a high phosphate diet um, and as you get older um, you have to use more and more and more FGF23 in order to be able to get rid of the phosphate. And FGF23 does a couple of interesting things. So one of the things it does is it um, prevents the function of an enzyme called 1-alpha-hydroxylase. And that's necessary to make active 125-vitamin D. And 125-vitamin D is necessary for the production of cloth. So as you get older, and as you keep eating high phosphate diets, and as your FGF23 goes up and up, your vitamin D levels go down and down, and your clotho levels go down and down. And, and that's bad for you, because now the kidneys are reabsorbing more phosphate. And that's actually damaging to the kidneys. Um, in small animal molecules, small animals, where you can do things like you can knock out the clotho gene and you can knock out the phosphate transporters, you can do tests to show that the, kid, that the animal's kidneys do much poorer um, if you knock out either of those. So. It's interesting. So the uh, it's not commonly appreciated, I think, that the high phosphate diets are uh, impairing the body, the kidneys' ability to make that final conversion, the second hydroxylation for the, the vitamin D precursor. So. This, this is all relatively new, actually. I mean, this has well, really well, been well, in the me, last me, decade. Yeah, just let me finish my question because the question is, is it is it just the 125? Does the high phosphate inhibit that second hydroxylation, or is it the first? Because it's an important distinction. Because if it inhibits just the second, then the typical vitamin D assay that's done is 25 hydroxy D, not that 125. So you'd have to do the complete panel to see that the phosphate was impairing that. Um, you're right. Um, and sooner or later, we're going to be able to actually clinically use FGF23. Right now, it's a research assay, but as soon as it becomes clinically available, it's something that we're going to be watching um, because presumably as that goes up and up and the the change from 25 to 125 vitamin D is going to go down and down. So it's a way for us to actually follow what's going on better than we can now. All right. So you've given us two clues to help improve our kidney health and secondarily our general health. One is a low acid diet, which an optimal protein diet, but additionally, a 
relatively moderate phosphorus diet. So, or avoid a high phosphorus diet would be more accurate. Yeah. So what, what is a high? What, what is a high phosphate diet? So yeah. we have this discussion routinely with our patients. Yeah, because um, and the reason I'm asking is because we could take nutrient trackers like chronometer, and you could pretty much to a milligram figure out, calculate how much phosphorus you're eating. Mm -hmm. So first off, dairy products. Um, so all dairy products contain, you know, essentially four things, calcium, phosphorus, protein, and fat, because they're designed to build bones and muscles. Um, and so for, for kidney failure patients, we pretty much eliminate dairy products. Um, and then colas. Um, so they add phosphatyric acid to a lot of things, including colas. And so we try to get people not to eat, not to drink stuff that has phosphatyric acid in it. And then there are some other specific foods like chocolate and nuts that we tell people with advanced kidney failure to avoid. Um, I mean, those are some of them. There's, there's others. So, but what is the threshold? Of what are you try, How many milligrams are you trying to get them below per day in an advanced case? And would you think is secondarily what you'd recommend for a healthy person to keep their kidneys? In yeah. So nobody knows the answer to what, how much to limit phosphate intake in a normal healthy person, um, because we don't look at that. Um, and it's only recent, and it's only this whole thing with, you know, the FGF23 and the vitamin D and the clotho over the last decade that people have started to say, maybe we should be limiting phosphate intake, not just when the blood phosphate levels are high, mm -hmm. but maybe nice. before that. So this is theoretical. Um, and so nobody knows the answer to that one. Do you have any intuitive feelings? Because I suspect you're looking at this and, and you can measure that, or at least you can analytically back, back figure, figure it out. Uh, so I was thinking like under a gram a day, a thousand milligrams might be a wise target. You know, I mean, nobody knows the answer to this one. I mean, I'm, I'm, very, I'm being very specific about this because in the nephrology literature, there is this question has come up and we don't know how Darn. much to limit it to. Gosh, got to slap some of those nephrologists around. They need to do their homework because that's a basic question. It's so fundamental mm. to the kidney health. You would think they'd have done the studies to figure this out. You know, really, I mean, I'm, I'm very serious about the fact that, you know, our ability to understand this better is not, is not old. It's really only been in the last few years. Okay, so so the now we understand done. better what to do. But, okay. you know, no, it wasn't done before. But then, don't really mean to put in a plug here, but that's actually one of the reasons why I like Cordain's The Paleo Diet, because actually he does actually specifically say adults shouldn't be eating dairy products. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that, um, you know. Well, it's, and, and there's other foods too that he avoids, I believe, avoiding legumes, which are another high source of phosphate, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, beans, for, yeah, beans are another high source of phosphate. Yeah, so I think there probably is some value, and I'm going to actually do a little homework on this because it seems to make a lot of sense, and I really wasn't aware of this as association prior to me hearing your presentation. Right. So, and it makes a lot of sense. It I really mean, this does. is really chemistry. I mean, all these things are acids. Yeah, so. yeah. basic stuff. So mm -hmm. maybe you can touch a little bit more on clotho because 
for those of us who study anti-aging, it does come up quite a bit. And so you, you talked about its role in the phosphate, but talk about its role in anti-aging in telomeres. Hmm. So that's a really good question. And I'm going to say that there are a lot of similarities between um, things that happen in aging and things that happen as kidney failure progresses. And so that's actually how I got interested in this because, you know, if some of the biochemical things are, you have increases in FGF20, excuse me, in TGF beta, which causes scarring. You have um, increased cell death and apoptosis, um, which occur both with kidney failure and aging. Um, you have shortening of the telomeres, and we know that increased telomere length and increased telomerase activity um, keep you alive longer, too, um, at least worms um, and and um, you have advanced increases in advanced glycation end products in both uremia and aging so I actually see that I actually think that maybe some of the things that are occurring as we are getting older are occurring because our kidneys are getting worse as we're getting older and if that you know and and so if what's happening to the kidneys, um, as the kidneys fail, if we can slow progression of kidney, of kidney damage, you know, potentially we could slow some of the, some of the aging progression, some of the breakdowns that occur as we get older too, because, you know, they, they are, they may be related. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually something that we're, we're trying to look at more, one of the research projects that I'm working on. Yeah, so is, it, is there anything more to Clotho than just the association with telomere length? Or do you think it's just a, it's a, a, it's a correlation and not a, a causal issue? I think that there are two different factors which are associated with aging. And I think that because Clotho levels go down and telomeres get shorter in kidney failure, independent of how old you are, okay? And telomere length goes down and Clotho declines with aging and kidney function declines with aging. I'm questioning what the relationship is and whether or not, you know, some of that is actually the same problem. Yeah, and ju just to repeat for those who might be interested in this, uh, unless you have a research lab, you're not going to be measuring your clotho levels. It's not a commercially available assay, but this FGF23? No. FGF23 is also yeah. not commercially available. Yet, but Yet. soon to be by your... By your I, I anticipate that this is lab. something that people are really going to want to look at, um, especially kidney doctors. I mean, this is something that we would really like to know what's going on. We can't look at serum phosphorus levels because that doesn't tell us the overall status. It's kind of like, what's your blood sugar and what's your hemoglobin A1C? You know, blood phosphate levels tell us what your blood phosphate level is now. But what we'd like to know is what's the overall status. And that's what FGF23 would do. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, because the big, maybe we should have had this discussion at the beginning, but as a nephrologist, if you could give your uh, recommendations for someone, for how someone might monitor their own kidney function at a, at a base level and working your way up. So 
obviously you've got your creatinine and BUN, if you can give your recommendations then when they exceed certain levels, I mean, obviously you need professional guidance to do this, but from just to help people understand what the process is and you know what the next step is, when do you do a GFR test and, uh, and either other assays like cystatin C that you'd recommend. So I, I would be curious how, you know, your, your explanation to patients who are beginning the journey to kidney failure. Okay, so um, all, everybody's doctor routinely checks a renal panel, and so that will give you the blood urea nitrogen level, and it'll give you the serum creatinine. And we calculate GFR based on your gender and your age and your serum creatinine, um, and there's a factor for race, too. Um, and so that will give you this number, um, that's, that's, calculated. that's calculated, it's not measured. It's calculated, right, exactly. From, but we measure the creatinine. Um, and so the, which, which kidney test to do um, depends on a couple of different factors, which mainly have to do with whether or not you think the number might be wrong. So there are some people where we don't know how much muscle mass they really have. Um, and so creatinine is a measure of muscle mass. And so a creatinine measure might be wrong there. Cystatin C, which is another protein um, that is um, filtered through the kidney, is affected by inflammation. Um, so if you have a bad infection or you have some sort of acute inflammatory process, then cystatin C will be um, high because of that and not related to the kidney function. So depend, you, you choose the kidney test that you want to do based on whether or not you think that there's something interfering with that test. Um, in terms of just measure, looking at kidney health, there's two things that we look at. One is, what is that EGFR number? And two is, do you have any protein in the urine? So those are two, those can be two separate problems. And, and protein in the urine in and of itself is bad for kidney function, we think. Um, this was discovered many years ago by a guy named Barry Brenner, where he um, did five, six nephrectomies in rats and showed that the um, remaining kidney, um, the so-called um, nephron remnant, um, had to hyperfilter in order to be able to um, clear all the blood. And that hyperfiltration through the glomerular membrane was bad for the membrane, and so the membrane started to leak protein. Um, and so we now know that there are a number of kidney problems where the membrane is leaking protein, and that causes the, the kidney to be more damaged. So if you had to do just two things, just to see how healthy you are, the first would be to to get a blood test um, to see where your kidney function is. And the second is to get a urinalysis. And pretty much anytime you go in for a primary care visit, those are the two tests that they usually do. Yeah. And, and actually, you could do the urinalysis yourself. I mean, you could easily on Amazon pick up these sticks, these urine stick, dipsticks. You that could. will tell you if you have protein. And that's the way they test it in the commercial lab anyway. They use the dipsticks. I, think, yeah. I don't think they measure it precisely unless you're doing a specific quantified some some tests some labs do and some labs don't. 
Um, so some labs can give you a quantitative uh, guess, you know, like 30 milligrams per deciliter or 100 milligrams per deciliter or greater than 300 milligrams per deciliter. So I'm curious as to where your threshold would be of concern for serum creatinine, uh, or you just go by the estimated GFR. And, and so right. in other words, when, when, when the estimated GFR hits one level or the serum creatinine hits another level, do you go for a measured GFR? Yeah, so these days we routinely get both of them reported at the same time. So what a normal creatinine is would depend on what your muscle mass is. So if you are a little tiny little old lady with not very much muscle <laughs> mass, creatinine, hmm? <laughs> with massive sarcopenia. No, just little old ladies. I mean, you have small Asian women who are, you know, 30 years old, for example. Okay. They don't have a lot of muscle mass. Normal creatinine for them might be 0.7, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you have a six and a half foot tall football player, um, a normal creatinine for him might be 1.6 or 1.8. Really? So for the, old, for, the, for the small Asian woman, 1.8 is super high, okay? And, you know, I wouldn't expect anybody who has a lot of muscle mass to have a creatinine of 0.7 no matter what. Yeah. Um, I'd expect there was a problem with the measurement. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so the Good. number is not, is not like, oh, my God, it's this, yeah. okay? Um, but we use that number to do a calculation that takes into whether you're male or female and how old you are and whether or not you're African-American or not. So well, what, um, what, I'm curious, what is, what is the issue of being an African-American have to do? Is it... Yeah, this, I'm going to say that this was an empirically derived equation. So the guys who came up with these various equations looked at a massive amount of data, like actual data, and then fit the equation to the data and came up with this equation and said, which factors are important? So this is an empirically derived number. Okay. All right. So it's not really clear why that. No, no. This is just to make the numbers come out right. Okay. All right, so, uh, but there's still at some point when, even if that point means that you're confused because you can't really determine the person's precise muscle mass, uh, when does it make sense to get the measured one? And I mean, that, which involves, as I understand, a collection for 24 hours of the urine and then sending it to the lab to actually measure it. Um, so that's a creatinine clearance um, that you're talking about. Would, so, it, can't when you would I to do that? Um, I don't. I don't routinely do 24-hour urines for creatinine clearance unless I'm doing a research study, or in very, very advanced kidney disease, we do 24-hour urine collections for urea and creatinine, and then we average the two to try to guess what the GFR is. Um, okay. so but is normally, I don't do that. Well, how do you measure? I mean, it's supposed to estimate. How do you measure GFR? Uh, well, we don't normally measure oh, GFR. There's the okay? We no normally estimate GFR. I thought that I thought there was a laboratory that tested that you could measure it. How foolish of me! Um, not the way it's normally reported. No, okay. not without doing special tests. Um, yeah. I mean, and if you really want to measure. Um, 
this is a little bit in the weeds for those nerds out there. Um, but what you really want to do is find a compound that after it's filtered, isn't reabsorbed by the kidney tubules and isn't secreted by the kidney tubules. So if we really want to measure GFR, we give something that is only filtered, like iohexol, for example, mm -hmm. um, or inulin. Um, was the old way we used to do this. So it is possible to actually get a true GFR measurement, um, but we don't routinely do that. I'm curious. I'm wondering why not. Was it a? I mean, it was it was a commercially available lab test, and it's just abandoned because they didn't find utility in it. Um, so if you're talking about the 24-hour urine, um, the reason one it's you have to get people to do yeah, it, okay, number one. Two, they have to do it correctly or it doesn't help you. Um, and in my, you know, in my experience, because I do these for research purposes, even after having people watch a video, tell the nurse what to do, give them written instructions on what to do, about 10% get it wrong. So, you know, it's not just oh just do it okay yeah, you gotta yeah. work at it a little bit yeah complexities but but it's still it's still a commercially available it's test. still available. oh yes of course and we do use it but not just as the routine okay. you know primary okay. care let's just check your health visit yeah because of the practical challenges of implementation and compliance okay well that makes sense uh i think that's kind of many people will find that discussion useful so thank you for sharing that perspective uh, are there any other insights from your decades of research in this area that you'd like to share? Um, so, you know, most of what we've done is look at acidotic stress, okay? But what most people are familiar with is oxidative stress, which mm -hmm. is where the, electron, uh, the oxygen molecules have too many electrons. So this is an Oxidative stress is one kind of stress, and acidotic stress is another kind of stress. And my belief is that they're actually both important, okay? It's not just one or the other, it's really both. Um, and so that's, and I believe that that's important towards progressive kidney disease. Um, and it's been shown to be important in aging too. Um, a friend of mine named Alyssa Eppel um, has looked at the relationship between telomere length and telomerase activity and oxidative stress um, and has shown, for example, in people who are under a lot of stress um, who have shorter telomeres and abnormal telomerase function, that they have higher levels of oxidative stress. Um, so, you know, it, I think they're both important. It's not, I, I happen to have done more research on the one thing, but really I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, I, I read her book. She co-wrote it with Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the right. prize, uh, the telomere effect is the name of the book. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious uh, if you have a insight as to how this excessive oxidative stress causes the damage. Is it, a, is it a, a biologically, is it in the mitochondria or is it actually in the renal tubules or both? My guess is it's both. Um, I think that because 
the body really doesn't like to have free protons and free electrons floating around because they attach themselves to different molecules and damage the molecules. My belief is that this is really works at a, at a fundamental chemical level and not just on one thing, but on lots of different parts of the body. And so the whole idea would be to lower the amount of oxidative stress and lower the amount of acidotic stress and therefore limit the damage to the body. Yeah, and it's probably target specific too because excessive or, or extra protons can actually be beneficial if they're in the uh, mitochondria and you're pumping them through uh, complex five ATP synthetase to generate ATPs. So, but, it, but the excessive protons you're referring to are, are uh, I would assume they're interstitial. Well, I think that they're intracellular, they're intracellular. interstitial. Um, you know, pH, what pH really is, is a measure of the free electrons, the free, excuse me, the free protons um, in the body. So, because this is uh, anti-logarithmic, so the higher the pH, the lower the actual number of hydrogen, hydrogen protons floating around. So, for example, normally, if you have advanced kidney function and your blood pH is, let's say, 7.30 or 7.35, um, you have a lot more free hydrogen protons floating around in your bloodstream um, than you would if you have 20-year-old kidneys and your blood pH is 7.45. So it's that there. We're actually talking about measures of you know like these free protons floating around, damaging things. Yeah, absolutely. So, do you have any good resources you advise uh, people with if they're interested in following a low acid diet and how to implement that? Yeah, eat more fruits and vegetables. This is a balanced thing. Okay, oh. it's not so much that you're not supposed to eat protein. It's that if you're eating a lot of protein, you should be eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. And my personal belief is you should probably limit the amount of dairy products that adults eat. Um, yeah, there's a, been a lot of arguments against dairy products, but from my perspective, this is probably one of the most compelling that I've ever heard, is that the high phosphate levels that contribute to premature kidney aging and, and general cellular aging. So that's a pretty strong argument. It's an argument, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and it, it makes some sense. You know, I mean, there's certainly value for milk, but, you know, people ascribe this, this is only for babies, and maybe that's right. I mean, it's certainly biologically, that's what appears to be the case. So, I mean, it can be used therapeutically, but you've got to be careful of that phosphate. So, uh, well, any other comments or recommendations you'd like to provide us with? Um. Probably the one thing that I would say to a general audience is um, when we when kidney doctors think about you know kidney problems, by the time people are sent to us, typically they've lost about three quarters of their kidney function. And if you really want to make a difference, this is really you really have to catch it much earlier. And so it's really super important that people, you know, go and get regular checkups so that if they're starting to develop a problem, we can find out about it early when there's still something that we can do. 
um, as opposed to, you know, when, you know, your GFR is like 25, you know, and we're working with the last couple of thousand nephrons when really our, our ability to, you know, really slow things down is, is just much, much limited, more limited. So, yeah, that kind of a, reminded me of another question to ask. And uh, before I went to med school, I actually was a coordinator of the kidney transplant team for the University of Illinois and was responsible for harvesting the kidneys for transplant. I'm wondering, but that was many years ago. That was in the 70s. So uh, I'm wondering what the ex your experience now is with transplants, because obviously once you hit, reach end-stage renal failure, you're dead unless you're on dialysis, some form of either peritoneal or hemo, or you're getting a transplant. So has right. the transplant process improved nowadays? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so the main problem with kidney transplants is the limitation of the number of organs that are being harvested and transplanted. And the fact that the number of living donors has not increased dramatically over the last two decades. So the number of people on dialysis awaiting transplantation goes up and up, and the number of kidneys available really has not gone up very much at all. And so the gap is widening more and more. Um, and it's clear that um, after about the first year, um, not only are kidney transplants patients healthier, but it's more cost-effective. Um, to you know keep them healthy dialysis is both extremely expensive and just barely keeps you alive um, so you know transplant would definitely be better um, but for example that's what's um, promoting this whole new government um, kidney initiative which um, you know came out about six months ago and um, you know, one of the things that I'm working with here at UCSF is the artificial kidney guys run by Shiva Roy and Bill Fissell at Vanderbilt. Um, and what they're trying to do, as are other groups, um, trying to come up with um, a filtration system as well as a kidney tubular system so that instead of doing the kind of dialysis that we do now, which is just the filtration part, we have the kidney tubules in there. And the kidney tubules can do a lot of things that we can't do um, and it can it can respond to signals from the body so that we get a much better um, control of how much you reabsorb and how much you're getting rid of so you know it's in the future and this is like you know, at least a decade away, um, we'll be able to actually transplant um, artificial kidneys, um, which are, you know, partially mechanical filtration and partly biologic. Um, and then the, the ultimate holy grail um, is we would actually be able to grow kidneys, like real kidneys, and then we'd be able to use your cells to grow a kidney that looks just like your kidneys so that it would um, you, we, we would just be able to put it into you and we wouldn't need to worry about rejection of the transplanted organs. So. Even worse, taking the anti-rejection drugs. But I personally think that the cloning kidney is going to happen before the artificial one because they're making some exponential progress on it. Every year it gets better and better. But there's a point too that I, think I just like to include that most people aren't aware of, certainly you are, is that once you hit end-stage renal failure, uh, it's very costly procedure process, as you alluded to, but 
you don't have to worry about it because once you're there, you're in Medicare, even if you're 10 years old uh, and you're covered. So it pretty much covers yeah. most. So most all, all end-stage renal disease is covered by Medicare in the United States. Um, the problem, of course, is that Medicare only really covers the cost of the dialysis. And there are a lot of things that are not covered very well by Medicare, um, including you know, medications, for example. Um, so there's a lot of extra expense that comes with end-stage renal disease that's not necessarily covered sure. by um, your insurance. But without the Medicare, they couldn't afford that. Without I mean, Medicare, nobody could. can afford it, yeah. Yeah, that's they, right. Well, not nobody, but very few people, that's for sure. And, and most of these people would be dead in a few weeks, for sure. Well, you know, right, right now it costs about $90,000 a year, and the cost is going up about one to $2,000 a year. That's not including surgical procedures or medications or anything. So, yeah, I mean, some people could afford it, but not very many. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, when they do dialysis, is most of it peritoneal now? Or is it no. In the United States, most of it is hemodialysis that's done in special dialysis centers. Um, if you go to Canada, actually the majority is peritoneal dialysis, but not in the U.S. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for answering that. That was, uh, you know, these are, these are questions that we get asked a lot. Um, and the whole, the whole kidney initiative, one of them is to be able to do, for example, more dialysis at home, um, because then you could maybe do dialysis more often. And we know that that's better for you. So yeah, it's a complex problem. So complex problem, like almost any disease that we have, the answer is not the sophisticated end stage techniques and, and, and therapies. It is prevention. And that's why I was so intrigued with your presentation and want to have you on because you're really providing us with some strategies that can prevent end stage renal diseases if you catch it early enough. So the things we know of clearly, but also this new twist, which is not really why you know people knew about the low acid, but didn't appreciate that this phosphate, even the the kidney specialist didn't appreciate until a few years ago, and the research isn't even done on what the levels are now, but, but lowering your phosphate levels to a, as, as low as you can reasonably do and avoiding the high phosphate foods could be a tremendous benefit to improving your kidney function and maintaining your kidney function. Yeah, especially if you're older and your kidneys aren't working as well. I mean, I would particularly say that, you know, like those are the people that I would particularly want to like have like if I had to choose, say, I think you should focus on this. Yeah. Well, I, I greatly and deeply appreciate your contribution. It's a, a really an important <laughs> message. Uh, and, and it's so simple if you think about it. It's not that hard to go online and find low phosphate foods or go to chronometer and actually measure it yourself. And um, yeah. The National Kidney Foundation actually has a whole website dedicated to diet in renal disease. So you can get like every food known to mankind on this list. So yeah, absolutely. It's available. Yeah. And that, that's good. But you know, if you really want to be precise, I would put a plug in for chronometer.com, C-R-O-N-O-M-E-T-E-R. It's free. And you could just put, I mean, it takes a little effort to input your foods, but you can measure your food directly. You don't have to go and look it up in a list and it'll, it'll calculate everything for you. You don't have to add all the foods up a day. It says, boom, one number. There you got it. Okay. So it, it couldn't be easier. Thank God for technology. I mean, this, the 21st century offers some major, amazing benefits we didn't have back then. Oh, yeah, I agree to that. Yeah. Yeah, it was just crazy back then. So anyway, 
again, I want to thank you for your contribution and for helping us understand, I think, this really important part of kidney and total, total health. Well, I appreciate your asking. Thank you so much. All right. Okay, great. Bye. Bye.